Part One of Section One of Introduction of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blexton, Book One, Introduction, Section One. On the Study of the Law, Part One. Mr. Vice-Chancellor and Gentlemen of the University, the general expectation of so numerous and respectable an audience, the novelty, and, I may add, the importance of the duty required from this chair, must unavoidably be productive of great diffidence and apprehensions in him who has the honor to be placed in it. He must be sensible how much will depend upon his conduct in the infancy of a study which is now first adopted by public academical authority which has generally been reputed however unjustly of a dry and unfruitful nature and of which the theoretical elementary parts have hitherto received a very moderate share of cultivation he cannot but reflect that if either his plan of instruction be crude and injudicious or the execution of it lame and superficial, it will cast a damp upon the further progress of this most useful and most rational branch of learning, and may defeat for a time the public-spirited design of our wise and munificent benefactor. And this he must more especially dread, when he feels, by experience, how unequal his abilities are, unassisted by preceding examples, to complete, in the manner he could wish, so extensive and arduous a task, since he freely confesses that his former more private attempts have fallen very short of his own ideas of perfection. And yet the candor he has already experienced, and this last transcendent mark of regard, his present nomination by the free and unanimous suffrage of a great and learned university, an honor to be ever remembered with the deepest and most affectionate gratitude, these testimonies of your public judgment must entirely supersede his own, and forbid him to believe himself totally insufficient for the labor, at least, of this employment. One thing he will venture to hope for, and it certainly shall be his constant aim, by diligence and attention to atone for his other defects, esteeming that the best return which he can possibly make for your favorable opinion of his capacity will be his unwearied endeavors in some little degree to deserve it. The science thus committed to his charge, to be cultivated, methodized, and explained in a course of academical lectures, is that of the laws and constitution of our own country, a species of knowledge in which the gentlemen of England have been more remarkably deficient than those of all Europe besides. In most of the nations on the continent, where the civil or imperial law under different modifications is closely interwoven with the municipal laws of the land, no gentleman, or at least no scholar, thinks his education is complete till he has attended a course or two of lectures, both upon the institutes of Justinian and the local constitutions of his native soil, under the very eminent professors that abound in their several universities, and in the northern parts of our own island, where also the municipal laws are frequently connected with the civil, 
it is difficult to meet with a person of liberal education who is destitute of a competent knowledge in that science, which is to be the guardian of his natural rights and the rule of his civil conduct. Nor have the imperial laws been totally neglected, even in the English nation. A general acquaintance with their decisions has ever been deservedly considered as no small accomplishment of a gentleman, and the fashion has prevailed, especially of late, to transport the growing hopes of this island to foreign universities, in Switzerland, Germany, and Holland, which, though infinitely inferior to our own in every other consideration, have been looked upon as better nurseries of the civil, or, which is nearly the same, of their own municipal law. In the meantime, it has been the peculiar lot of our admirable system of laws to be neglected, and even unknown, by all but one practical profession, though built upon the soundest foundations, and approved by the experience of ages. Far be it from me to derogate from the study of the civil law, considered, apart from any binding authority, as a collection of written reason. No man is more thoroughly persuaded of the general excellence of its rules, and the usual equity of its decisions, nor is better convinced of its use as well as ornament to the scholar, the divine, the statesman, and even the common lawyer. But we must not carry our veneration so far as to sacrifice our Alfred and Edward to the manes of Theodosius and Justinian. We must not prefer the edict of the praetor, or the rescripts of the Roman emperor, to our own immemorial customs, or the sanctions of an English parliament, unless we can also prefer the despotic monarchy of Rome and Byzantium, for whose meridians the former were calculated to the free constitution of Britain, which the latter are adapted to perpetuate. Without detracting, therefore, from the real merit which abounds in the imperial law, I hope I may have leave to assert that if an Englishman must be ignorant of either the one or the other, he had better be a stranger to the Roman than the English institutions. For I think it an undeniable position that a competent knowledge of the laws of that society in which we live is the proper accomplishment of every gentleman and scholar, and highly useful, I had almost said essential, part of liberal and polite education. And in this I am warranted by the example of ancient Rome, where, as Cicero informs us, the very boys were obliged to learn the twelve tables by heart, as a carmen necessarium, or indispensable lesson, to imprint on their tender minds an early knowledge of the laws and constitutions of their country. But, as the long and universal neglect of this study, with us in England, seems in some degree to call in question the truth of this evident position, it shall therefore be the business of this introductory discourse, in the first place, to demonstrate the utility of some general acquaintance with the municipal law of the land, by pointing out its particular uses in all considerable situations of life, some conjectures will then be offered with regard to the causes of neglecting this useful study, to which will be subjoined a few reflections on the peculiar propriety of reviving it in our own universities, and, first, to demonstrate the utility of some acquaintance with the laws of the land, let us only reflect a moment on the singular frame and policy of that land, which is governed by this system of laws. A land, 
perhaps the only one in the universe, in which political or civil liberty is the very end and scope of the Constitution. This liberty, rightly understood, consists in the power of doing whatever the law permits. Footnote. Facultas eut, quod quique facere libet, nisi quid vi, aut jure probibetur. End footnote. Which is only to be effected by a general conformity of all orders and degrees to those equitable rules of action, by which the meanest individual is protected from the insults and oppression of the greatest. As therefore every subject is interested in the preservation of the laws, it is incumbent upon every man to be acquainted with those, at least, with which he is immediately concerned, lest he incur the censure, as well as inconvenience, of living in society without knowing the obligations which it lays him under. And thus much may suffice for persons of inferior condition, who have neither time nor capacity to enlarge their views beyond that contracted sphere in which they are appointed to move but those on whom nature and fortune have bestowed more abilities and greater leisure cannot be so easily excused. These advantages are given them, not for the benefit of themselves only, but also of the public, and yet they cannot, in any scene of life, discharge properly their duty, either to the public or themselves, without some degree of knowledge in the laws. To evince this the more clearly, it may not be amiss to descend to a few particulars. Let us therefore begin with our gentlemen of independent estates and fortune, the most useful as well as considerable body of men in the nation, whom even to suppose ignorant in this branch of learning is treated by Mr. Locke as a strange absurdity. It is their landed property, with its long and voluminous train of descents and conveniences, settlements, entails, and encumbrances that forms the most intricate and most extensive object of legal knowledge. The thorough comprehension of these, in all their minute distinctions, is perhaps too laborious a talk for any but a lawyer of profession. Yet, still the understanding of a few leading principles relating to estates and conveniencing may form some check and guard upon a gentleman's inferior agents, and preserve him at least from very gross and notorious imposition. Again, the policy of all laws has made some forms necessary in the wording of last wills and testaments, and more with regard to their attestation, and ignorance of these must always be of dangerous consequence, to such as by choice or necessity compile their own testaments without any technical assistance. Those who have attended the courts of justice are the best witnesses of the constitution and distresses that are hereby occasioned in families, and of the difficulties that arise in discerning the true meaning of the testator, or sometimes in discovering any meaning at all, so that in the end his estate may often be vested quite contrary to these his enigmatical intentions, because perhaps he has omitted one or two formal words which are necessary to ascertain the sense with indisputable legal precision, or has executed his will in the presence of fewer witnesses than the law requires. But, to proceed from private concerns to those of a more public consideration, all gentlemen of fortune are, in consequence of their property, liable to be called upon 
to establish the rights, to estimate the injuries, to weigh the accusations, and sometimes to dispose of the lives of their fellow subjects, by serving upon juries. In this situation they are frequently to decide, and that upon their oaths, questions of nice importance, in the solution of which some legal skill is requisite, especially where the laws and the fact, as it often happens, are intimately blended together, and the general incapacity, even of our best juries, to do this with any tolerable propriety, has greatly debased their authority, and has unavoidably thrown more power into the hands of the judges, to direct, control, and even reverse their verdicts, than perhaps the Constitution intended. But it is not as a juror only that the English gentleman is called upon to determine the questions of right, and distribute justice to his fellow subject. It is principally with this order of men that the commission of the peace is filled. And here a very ample field is opened for a gentleman to exert his talents, by maintaining good order in his neighborhood, by punishing the dissolute and idle, by protecting the peaceable and industrious, and, above all, by healing petty differences and preventing vexatious prosecutions. But, in order to attain these desirable ends, it is necessary that the magistrate should understand his business, and have not only the will, but the power also, under which must be included the knowledge of administering legal and effectual justice. Else, when he has mistaken his authority through passion, through ignorance, or absurdity, he will be the object of contempt from his inferiors, and of censure from those to whom he is accountable for his conduct. Yet further, most gentlemen of considerable property, at some period or other in their lives, are ambitious of representing their country in Parliament, and those who are ambitious of receiving so high a trust would also do well to remember its nature and importance. They are not thus honorably distinguished from the rest of their fellow-subject, merely that they may privilege their persons, their estates, or their domestics, that they may list under party banners, may grant or withhold supplies, may vote with or vote against a popular or unpopular administration, but upon considerations far more interesting and important. They are the guardians of the English constitution, the makers, repealers, and interpreters of the English laws, delegated to watch, to check, and to avert every dangerous innovation, to propose, to adopt, and to cherish any solid and well-weighted improvement bound by every tie of nature, of honor, and of religion, to transmit that constitution and those laws to their posterity, amended if possible, at least without any derogation. And how unbecoming must it appear in a member of the legislature to vote for a new law, who is utterly ignorant of the old? What kind of interpretation can he be enabled to give, who is a stranger to the text upon which he comments, Indeed, it is really amazing that there should be no other state of life, no other occupation, art, or science, in which some method of instruction is not looked upon as requisite, except only the science of legislation. The noblest and most difficult of any apprenticeships are held necessary to almost every art, 
commercial, or mechanical, a long course of reading and study must form the divine, the physician, and the practical professor of the laws, but every man of superior fortune thinks himself born a legislator. Yet Tully was of a different opinion. It is necessary, says he, for a senator to be thoroughly acquainted with the Constitution, and this, he declares, is a knowledge of the most extensive nature, a matter of science, of diligence, of reflections, without which no senator can possibly be fit for his office. The mischiefs that have arisen to the public from inconsiderate alterations in our laws are too obvious to be called in question, and how far they have been owing to the defective education of our senators is a point well worthy the public attention. The common law of England has fared like other venerable edifices of antiquity, which rash and unexperienced workmen have ventured to new dress and refine, with all the rage of modern improvement. Hence frequently its symmetry has been destroyed, its proportions distorted, and its majestic simplicity exchanged for specious embellishments and fantastic novelties. For, to say the truth, almost all the perplexed questions, almost all the niceties, the intricacies, and delays which have sometimes disgraced the English as well as other courts of justice, owe their original not to the common law itself, but to innovations that have been made in it by acts of Parliament, overladen, as Sir Edward Cook expresses it, with provisions and additions, and many times on a sudden, penned or corrected by men of none or very little judgment in law. This great and well-experienced judge declares that in all his time he never knew two questions made upon rights merely depending upon the common law, and warmly laments the confusion introduced by ill-judging and unlearned legislators. But if, he subjoins, acts of Parliament were, after the old-fashioned pained, by such only as perfectly knew what the common law was before the making of any act of Parliament concerning that matter, as also how far forth former statutes have provided remedy for former mischiefs, and effects discovered by experience, then should very few questions in law arise, and the learned should not so often and so much perplex their heads to make atonement and peace by construction of law, between insensible and disagreeing words, sentences, and provisos, as they now do, and if this inconvenience was so heavily felt in the reign of Queen Elizabeth, you may judge how the evil is increased in later times, when the statute-book is swelled to ten times a larger bulk, unless it should be found that the penners of our modern statutes have proportionally better informed themselves in the knowledge of the common law. What is said of our gentlemen in general, and the propriety of their application to the study of the laws of their country, will hold equally strong, or still stronger, with regard to the nobility of this realm, except only in the article of serving upon juries. But, instead of these, they have several peculiar provinces of far greater consequence and concern, being, not only by birth, hereditary consulars of the crown, and judges upon their honour of the lives of their brother-peers, but also arbiters of the property of all their fellow-subjects, and that, in the last resort, 
In this, their judicial capacity, they are bound to decide the nicest and most critical points of the law, to examine and correct such errors as have escaped the most experienced sages of the profession, the Lord Keeper and the judges of the courts at Westminster. Their sentence is final, decisive, irrevocable. No appeal, no correction, not even a review can be had. And to their determination, whatever it be, the inferior courts of justice must conform, otherwise the rule of property would no longer be uniform and steady. Should a judge in the most subordinate jurisdiction be deficient in the knowledge of the law, it would reflect infinite contempt upon himself and disgrace upon those who employ him. And yet, the consequence of his ignorance is comparatively very trifling and small. His judgment may be examined, and his errors rectified by other courts. But how much more serious and affecting is the case of a superior judge, if, without any skill in the laws he will boldly venture to decide a question, upon which the welfare and subsistence of whole families may depend, where the chance of his judging right or wrong is barely equal, and where, if he chances to judge wrong, he does an injury of the most alarming nature, an injury without possibility of redress. Yet, vast as this trust is, it can nowhere be so properly resposed as in the noble hands where our excellent constitution has placed it, and therefore placed it, because, from the independence of their fortune and the dignity of their station, they are presumed to employ that leisure which is the consequence of both, in attaining a more extensive knowledge of the laws than persons of inferior rank, and because the founders of our policy relied upon that delicacy of sentiment, so peculiar to noble birth, which, as on the one hand it will prevent either interest or affection from interfering in questions of right, so on the other it will bind a peer in honour, an obligation which the law esteems equal to another's oath, to be master of those points upon which it is his birthright to decide. End of Part 1 of Section 1 of the Introduction